Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. George Farmer is an internationally renowned aquascaper, author, YouTube creator, and aquarium plant expert from the UK. After an eventful 14 years in the Royal Air Force as an armorer, which included working on Harrier jump jet ejection seats, tornado aircraft missile systems, and a six-month bomb disposal tour in Afghanistan, he made the transition from a part-time aquarium hobby into a full-time career in aquascaping. George co-founded the UK Aquatic Plant Society in 2007, and he has hundreds of magazine articles and photos published worldwide. Pre-COVID, he traveled around the world giving keynote addresses and practical workshops showcasing the beautiful art of aquascaping. George is passionate about promoting aquascaping through his unique blend of educational and inspirational content and is a huge advocate of the therapeutic value that aquascaping has brought to his and many other lives, helping with various mental health issues such as PTSD, depression, and anxiety. His new book, Aquascaping, is available from all major bookstores. All right, George Farmer, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm really good. Thanks for having me, Pete. Oh, very, very welcome. Uh, George, at long last, after a lot of uh, really interesting email correspondence, very happy to be able to chat with you on the podcast. Uh, my own growing interest in aquascaping is what led me to your YouTube channel. And subsequently, after listening to a couple of your podcast appearances on some other platforms, I discovered that, you know, you might be a really interesting fellow to chat with around mental health and personal growth and those kind of things. So a couple of email exchanges later, here we are. <laughs> uh, I think it's going to be a pretty wide-ranging conversation, and one that I hope will have a little something for everyone, and one, one that I think will be really meaningful, ultimately. I hope so. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me again. You are very welcome. Okay, so George, for a lot of people, their exposure to aquaria is really seeing like a murky, algae-filled 10-gallon aquarium with a, with a goldfish stuffed into it, maybe with a <laughs> bubbling treasure chest or a you know, a skull of some kind. So for the uninitiated, mm. what is aquascaping? Yeah, aquascaping is, put very simply, the art of making beautiful aquariums. So we actually decorate the aquarium with real intention. And uh, the style of aquascaping that I really focus on and advocate uh, relies on live plants, you know, live aquarium plants, uh, natural materials such as wooden rocks, and you're composing these these visual elements in a glass box, and the end result is something really quite beautiful, and actually uh, helps to helps people like me. It helps to really kind of connect or reconnect people with nature, and I think that's really important in today's society. George, how long has aquascaping been around uh, as a hobby? Um, you can go back to the 1930s in in Holland and the Netherlands. They used to have like a it's still running right now, in fact. They have a, a, a Dutch aquarium society. And they would actually have, they'd actually write these, come up with these special strict rules on how you should decorate your aquarium. And the Dutch style of aquascaping was invented. And it, and it was very much uh, inspired by the formal kind of English gardens that you might imagine, you know, outside, you know, posh Victorian uh, manor houses, etc. So they're very kind of, uh, when you look at a Dutch style aquascape, it's very distinctive. It's very neat. It's very formal, you know, formal rows and groups of plants. And it's very, it's actually quite, um, it's very beautiful, very high impact, but it, it's very uh, kind of strict and rules driven. 
Whereas the style of aquascaping that I like to focus on is much more using nature as inspiration and actually uh, working deliberately with elements of chaos and, and unbalance. So, yeah, going back to the original point, yeah, sort of 1920s, 30s, this kind of, this Dutch style of aquascaping came, came on. And then in the 80s and 90s, you had arguably the godfather of modern aquascaping, uh, Takashi Amano, came on the scene with his with his company, Aqua Design Amano. And he absolutely changed the game with aquascaping he came up with this principle of using elements of nature from outside you know so you could be using mountains trees just uh, a pile of rocks just laying there naturally on the ground but using these these natural uh, visual elements and then transposing those into the aquarium space and not deliberately um strictly copying that landscape or the seascape or or the or the forest scape or whatever you see you're not directly shrinking it into the aquarium but you're just using those 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 natural elements and that essence of nature and just communicating that uh, the beautiful kind of feeling that most people experience when they're immersed in nature you you're really kind of getting that impact and and that and and that sensation when you stare into one of these beautiful aquascapes. Absolutely. And for the listener, I would really encourage them to hop on George's channel and have a look at some of the videos that he has just outlining these beautiful, beautiful uh, aquascapes. And I would also say, George, from having read your book, it's so interesting that a well-constructed aquascape is, is sort of no accident, right? There's a, it may look chaotic. It may look like it's got a lot of different things going on, but it's, there's actually sort of formulas in place, sort of tried and true uh, ways of constructing these things. Can you maybe speak a little bit about about that to sort of bring people behind the curtain to the the science behind the art? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my my style of aquascaping is actually very straightforward, and and I think that's one of the reasons potentially that I have a relatively large following in this niche is because I can communicate a relatively complex topic in hopefully a relatively easy to understand way, and so. The, the very basic kind of process that I go through to create an aquascape is I start off with the substrate. So that's the thing that sits at the bottom of the aquarium. And that usually helps to feed the plants. It also helps to anchor the plants. And it can also help to give a, a visual aesthetic. So you can use different types of sands, different gravels, etc. So that's the step number one. You put the substrate in. Step number two is what we call the hardscape. Now, the hardscape is the decorative materials that go inside the aquarium. And as alluded to earlier, we usually use natural materials such as wooden rocks. And these are positioned deliberately. They're not just thrown in kind of randomly. You know, we choose the appropriate size pieces. We look, we look at the pieces for textures, for colours. And, you know, we're, whether we're choosing a rock or a piece of wood, you know, it just needs, it just needs to fit in that aquarium appropriately and we can use very simple guidelines for this so some of the listeners may have heard of the rule of thirds so when you're taking a photo on your smartphone quite often there's a grid overlaid on that screen and that is slicing that screen up into nine equal segments uh, third you know thirds going vertically thirds going horizontally where those lines intersect that's the ideal point where you should be considering your focal point of your aquascape so that could be the most dominant piece of rock or the, the the biggest piece of wood so consider that putting that a third of the way along your hard your your aquarium and maybe a third of the way up or down the aquarium so you step one soil or substrate step number two you've got your wood and your rocks in there 
And step number three is planting. And quite simply, I split the plant into four different types. You have foreground, midground, background, self-explanatory. And then finally, we have epiphytes plants. So these are plants that will grow attached to something else. Uh, in our case, uh, we use a lot of things, plants called Java fern, which is a very popular, easy to grow, uh, classic epiphyte plants, which will provide immediate kind of impact into an aquascape. You have things like Anubias, which are really easy to grow. They don't need much light at all. In fact, they tend to struggle if you give them too much light. Uh, and then you have uh, other epiphytes, Bucophalandra. These are, are very trendy at the moment in the hobby, lots of rare species available. Um, and then there's a whole, there's literally hundreds of species you can choose from to go for your foreground, midground, and background. But that's it, Pete. That's really simple as that. Step one, get your substrate in. Step two, hardscape. Step three, planting. And then consider your foreground, background, uh, midground, and epiphyte plants. Straightforward, really. <laughs> no, George, that's a great explanation. And again, for any listener who's going to stick around for the conversation, might be good for them to check out a picture of an aquascape just so they have it uh, in, in their minds as we talk about this. So, George, how did you get into aquascaping? What was your journey like into the hobby? Yeah, well, I remember tropical fish as a very young boy. Um, my uncle had uh, neon tetras, uh, and actually I have a close, I've, I've always been fond of them ever since. Uh, so I think I was four or five years old, and I was fascinated by this, these tropical fish. And I actually, uh, quite a tragic but funny story, I guess. I actually thought they were hungry. I was allowed to feed them. I fed them a tiny little pinch, as I was told to. And then when there's no adults in the room, I just thought the fish looked really, really hungry. And I ended up putting the whole pot in the tank. And then <laughs> uh, I tragically killed the fish. But it actually taught me a lesson, an early lesson, you know, that these things are a living entity. They need to be cared for. And I guess even in those early days, that may have planted the seed of wanting to kind of succeed with an aquarium. And then moving forward, you know, moving on to my early 20s with my, my first wife, she actually expressed an interest in setting an aquarium. I think one of her, one of her friend's husbands set one up and she, she liked it. And she said, oh, I think, you know, we could do, you know, let's have a nice aquarium at home. So um, I've, I've always fancied one, did a bit of research, bought an aquarium. Long story short, made loads of mistakes, did some research. And then the next thing I, quite soon after that, I discovered the work of Takashi Amano, which we've talked about already. I was bought, I was bought his first book, uh, Nature Aquarium World Book One, which was his kind of seminal work. And yeah, that, when I, when I saw that, that was just, I absolutely knew that was the direction I wanted to take my hobby and I took it really seriously and became an absolute uh, sponge of information, became obsessed about learning everything I could about aquascaping. And back in the UK, you know, this, we're talking early 2000s, it was, it, was, it was a very small part of the aquarium hobby. And um, it was re a real struggle to find good supplies and, and, and good information, in fact. And I was relying on a lot of the old school message boards and, and internet forums uh, back in the day before Facebook and, and other social media. I was relying on these um, these kind of groundbreaking forums from the USA and using some of these techniques in my own aquariums at home in the UK. And actually, I kind of got almost talent spotted, if you like, by a magazine. And um, they asked to uh, film my tank or, or photograph my tank for the magazine. And they said, um, yeah, they, they emailed me. In fact, it's, it's, it's a longer story, uh, probably one for another time. But I... 
basically the, re- the reason they kind of knew who I was because I used to write a letters into the magazine complaining that the, some of the material, some of the articles that they were printing were out of dated. And I could prove it because <laughs> I was achieving these great results, uh, you know, from some of the advice I was getting from the USA. So long story short, I sent them a photo of a tank. They said, we want to come and photograph it. I said, no, sorry, I'm in the Air Force. I'm going to the Falkland Islands for four months. Um, however, I can write. And I have access to some really good photos. Would you like me to start writing for the magazine about this new style of growing, you know, aquascaping and growing aquarium plants? And that was the beginning of, of converting, you know, my hobby, you know, uh, being an obsessive hobbyist into almost like a side hustle. So I was still in the Air Force full time, but I was hustling on the side, you know, writing for magazines, doing a, a few kind of public speaking events and gradually building up a kind of profile in the industry uh, whilst still maintaining a full time career in the Air Force. So, yeah, it was exciting times actually back then. So, George, with respect to your career in the Air Force, as well as aquascaping, which sounds like it was kind of like a growing interest. How did you end up blending the two together or managing kind of the com- competing demands of those two, you know, really big parts of your life? Or how did they end up sort of commingling with one another or, or even co-influencing yeah. each other to some extent? It's a really great question. And actually, this is an opportunity for me to really get quite deep and, and meaningful, so to speak. And um, so aquascaping for me, it was, um, it, 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 it was, it's such a big part of who I am and my identity and it, I think it it goes all the way back to having something that I'm I felt like I'm really good at uh because as a child actually I was always uh I was always told I was never good enough um every time I presented any work to my father uh, or just desperately wanted approval from it was never good enough you know literally rip it up throw it in the bin um and that that really obviously affected me and um it when I discovered aquascaping, it was like, oh my gosh, I've just, I've found something that I'm really good at. Um, I'm actually, I'm writing for these magazines. I'm doing these workshops. People, you know, seem to really enjoy what I'm doing. I'm becoming quite skilled at photography. I can, I can write all these skills that I, I feel like I'm really good at. And um, so that, that, there was that kind of box ticked, if you like, but it still made me feel kind of, you know, a little bit empty. It wasn't fulfilling this kind of chronic emptiness of feeling like not not really worthwhile, if you like. But it was definitely a step mm-hmm. in the right direction. And and the, the interesting thing about aquascaping, Pete, and I know you're interested in it, is for me, it's not just the the, the kind of uh, well known therapeutic side of sitting in front of an aquarium and and it making you and it making you feel more relaxed. You know, there's there's evidence that suggests it reduces heart rate, blood pressure anxiety you know all, all of the good kind of stuff that, that most people now kind of associate with watching an aquarium but for me it, it aquascaping actually provided me with a, a unique sense of purpose and value that i wasn't experiencing in the air force so without going into my kind of whole life history of childhood and when we can we can dive into some of the mental health issues and, and how i've dealt with them um but aquascaping it, it, it's just kind of it validated my kind of uh, existence, if you like, because it, I felt like I was contributing something worthwhile that, that people could, I, I could tangibly see people enjoying and learning from. Whereas with the career in the Air Force, 
you know, I was I was basically employed to kill people or prevent my friends from being killed, you know, at a base, you know, at a baseline level. And that and that actually always didn't sit comfortably with me ever since I signed on the dotted line. I knew it wasn't the right career for me in terms of fulfilling my potential or my passion. Uh, but it was a needs it was a, a needs must at the time. You know, I was going through a very dark phase in my life. And I used uh, the opportunity to join a military career to almost escape from from the life I was I was living, and I guess aquascaping came along, and I, it was from the it was the first thing that I felt like I I could use for for a, for the for the greater good, uh, not just uh, about serving me but serve, serving other people, which I absolutely didn't get when I was in the military. Does that answer the question? So I'm not sure. sure. <laughs> Went a bit. No, George, that's, I really appreciate the uh, the vulnerability in speaking to that piece. And I think there's such a good lesson in there that applies to therapy and something a dynamic we see a lot where, you know, we have our values, which are different than morals. Our values are the sort of the things that make us tick. And when we stray from our values, you know, our, our mood will let us know. And so what I hear in the aquascaping piece for you is that I had a lot of a sense of mastery, a sense of pleasure. It was meaningful. It was plugging into who you were and are as a person. Like the essence of George was contained in that. It, it sounds like the military piece didn't have quite that same resonance with that sense of self. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they call it cognitive dissonance, don't they? When you, you're not quite in line, you, 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 your living isn't quite in line with what you, how you think you should be living. Is that, or yeah, so you're not living authentically and it's just this constant, disconnect about uh the, the life that you think you should be living and the life that you are living there's always this kind of this battle i guess absolutely and usually that contributes to a real sense of existential angst and anxiety mm. right because you're you're presented with two paths and you know we're not sure which way to go and so it leads to a lot of physiological upheaval and mm. cognitive upheaval and it can be very uh, a very upsetting experience for people to be living one life while feeling that they could be or should be living another Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. And, you know, it was, I guess it makes sense to talk about the, the kind of, there, there was a significant event that actually really made me shift my career path. I guess it's worth talking about that, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Yeah. So the, I guess the, the, the pivotal event really was, was in Afghanistan. So um, although I was in the Royal Air Force, um, I was actually trained uh, with, uh, some bomb bomb disposal army guys. So there is a separate uh, Royal Air Force uh, bomb disposal squadron, um, but I was actually trained alongside uh, some army guys, and I worked alongside these guys for six months in Afghanistan as part of this bomb disposal team. And it was the most, uh, as you can imagine, it's one of the most challenging experiences of my life. I saw a lot, lots of crazy stuff, lots of traumatic things. Um, but the the real kind of the big event. Um, was when I got hit with a, in a roadside bomb. So I was with some other guys in an armoured vehicle. And, yeah, this, we, it flipped the vehicle, and it was really scary, of course, and trauma, trauma, traumatic, and there was lots of things that happened after that. Um, and it wasn't... It, everything died down, and I got back to, uh, got back to base. And, I, was, and I, had to, I had to get debriefed, and... Um, I was speaking to the officer in charge and he, and he said, 
you know, how was it? You know, let's talk about the stuff that went on. You know, from a, from like a, an intelligence gathering aspect, but they also have a duty of care to see if you're traumatized, obviously. And um, I was, yeah, I, was, I, I, I put a brave face on it, if I'm honest. And, and adrenaline, the adrenaline level is running so high anyway. And I'm an adrenaline junkie anyway, so I'm kind of comfortable with that, that high threat level, I guess. Uh, it's kind of, in a way, my comfort zone, but that must maybe another story. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. You know, he said, well, what did, you know, talked about what I saw and, and he said, yeah, I've seen much worse than that. My soldiers see much worse than that every day. Yeah. Don't, you know, nothing to worry about here. You know, just sort of played it right down. Uh, and, and I felt actually, and then I sort of questioned him and I, and I didn't question him out loud because you don't do that in the military. Sure. <laughs> you not, you yeah. don't get paid, you don't get paid to answer back. Yeah. Um, and I'll come away thinking, well, actually, that that was really, yeah. And he was trying to sweep it under the carpet. And then I was just, and then I started to feel really, you know, the angst that you were talking about. Um, and it, it was almost like my, my, my angst was more against the system rather than my actual trauma that I experienced. So it's, it's really weird. It's, it's actually quite interesting to reflect on it, it where I am now in my journey. Um, but I knew then that that was it. I, I don't want to be in the Air Force anymore. I don't want to be part of this military machine. I don't even believe what we're doing out here is for the greater good. Um, anyway, we'll avoid the politics out of it. That's an important point. Because, uh, I just did a podcast last week on uh, trauma and CBT conceptualization of trauma. And myself and the guest who has a lot of experience dealing with soldiers as well. It's the treatment by the system when people come back or out of trauma that forms the real injury, which it often even transcends the the very thing that they've experienced, right? So we call that moral injury, right? I think that's what I'm experiencing then. I'm, I'm, I think I feel much more morally injured than than the, the acute trauma of witnessing, you know, the, the horrors that I did. Because actually they don't give me, because I, I guess, you know, one of the classic symptoms of PTSD is, is nightmares. And I actually have very, very few now. But I do have a chronic... Um, I, I do have a chronic kind of resentment against the system, you know, against the military machine that was there at that time, because I, because of what I saw, and uh, you know, some of the people that we that we lost, you know. So yeah, that, that's that's an interesting point. Because when people are in the military, they they you know they they know they're signing up for one kind of danger, but they don't know, but you know, they don't agree to sign up to not have their back covered when something bad happens. Or to, or to have yeah. that, that experience invalidated, right? It's a, it's a very, it's almost like a bait and switch a little bit. That's how yeah. people report that it feels. Yeah. And uh, if if you don't mind, I'd like I'd like to get your take on a on a quite a specific example, Pete, because uh, you're super you're super bright on these sort of things, and obviously you're you're trained on these sort of things, and I really value your feedback. So, ab- about six months or so ago, I posted a photo. It was an anniversary of of when I got blown up in Afghanistan in this roadside bomb and it was i think it was the seven year anniversary and i posted a photo of me kneeling down next to um a detonating cord um in in the desert uh it's quite a cool photo if you're into sort of military kind of you know cool combat you know in retrospect in hindsight it kind of glorified uh, what i was doing but if you actually read the post it's on instagram people can read it now if they want to yeah, um, there's a photo of me kneeling down in the desert next to this detonating cord. And, and I write this whole kind of story about that day. 
and how it and how um, it was the day that triggered me to uh, real, like maybe realise I wanted to leave the Air Force and start start uh, self becoming self employed with aquascaping. And the story was it wasn't about um, it was just about finding purpose really. And you know I found my purpose with aquascaping. It's quite a simple message, um, but I think. 99% of people that commented, and I think it's, it's one of my most record commented on posts. I think it's had three or 400 comments now. And probably 98, 99% of them were, thank you for your service. You know, and that, that actually really bothered me because it, it was like people were thinking, oh, we, I didn't want people to thank me for my service because I didn't feel like I needed thanking for it. I didn't feel what I was doing um was a good thing and for people to thank me for it that added to this uh i don't know if cognitive dissonance is the right phrase but added to the sense of uh or inauthentic feeling so it had you know all these comments thank you and, and every every comment every time i read it it just like made me feel a little bit thing and i know people are saying it, it they want to have a positive impact and they are thanking me for doing something and I understand that, but the way it made me feel, it really put me into a, quite a uh, bit of a quandary, actually, about about it all. What would you would you make of that, Pete? Well, I think that's a sentiment that I've heard expressed by a number of the uh, soldiers and ex-soldiers that I've worked with. Just so for the listener, this is a standalone listen for them. I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but I have done a lot of work with the uh, Canadian military, and I've heard this a lot from uh, men and women who have served. And I think some of the discussions that we get into are around, yeah, understanding there's a difference between the intention and the outcome. So people have good intentions, but the outcome is a difficult one for, for, for you emotionally as the one receiving that information. It's also to remember that there's a difference between supporting the person versus supporting sort of the, the larger political machinery around that, that, that is initiating uh, these things, which we can have quibbles with. But, you know, at the end of it, we always want to support the people who are doing the, the boots on the ground work. But that may be very different from our take on the political level or political overlay. So but these are complex issues and, and often requires multiple things to be able to be true or have to be true at the same time, or we have to hold them to be true in our mind at the same time. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I appreciate that answer. It's interesting. To, I guess I wasn't really putting myself in the shoes of the people that are commenting. And you're right, they're more dictated to by the overall political statement rather than my story of, you know, aquascaping is better than blowing people up. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and I think what, what's hard about, you know, what's difficult about when people have been through trauma is that People who haven't had that experience don't necessarily share that lens, and it, it you know, this our st stories of trauma can be very upsetting for people, and they don't know how to react, and it creates all kinds of strange reactions in people. It creates a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? J just in general, it's like, I, it's like I don't want to believe that our country will send people over to different areas and have bad things happen, right? People don't want to necessarily you know, internalize that. So we tend to wrap it up in narratives that are a lot more emotionally convenient than they are uh, perhaps accurate. So George, after you had this incident, when did you start to notice that things were not right for you? Uh, what were the, what were sort of the, the signs or symptoms that you started to notice were kind of creeping up on you? I just, I, I actually became really depressed quite quickly. Um, around the same time, my wife at the time um, 
told me that she wanted to be separated. This is all within two weeks of this event. So there was that. Uh, that was obviously traumatic, knowing that I wasn't going to be living in the family home. You know, I had a, a, tri- a daughter as well at the time. I still do. Um, and to be honest with you, Pete, it's all, it's all a bit of a blur. I just, all I remember is being really sad. I, I, I managed to, I, I, I could sleep really well. It, it's the, it's, ironically, it's the best sleep. And, and I've, I've suffered from insomnia from, for as long as I can remember. But during my military duty in Afghanistan, that for some reason, I, I was getting eight, nine hours solid every night. And I've never, ever achieved that since. Even quite soon after, after the events. Yeah. So um, the depression, uh, feeling of worthlessness, feeling like what I was doing was just completely um, stupid and ridiculous. And I, just, I was just literally counting down the days. But then equally counting down the days to what going home to a messy divorce and yeah so i was in a really dark space if i'm honest and i i I just had to deal with it i mean i had a history of um you know i used to abuse alcohol and i used to be in the clubbing scene before i joined the RAF, and that's one of the reasons i joined the RAF to straighten myself out um and obviously when you're in afghanistan well it's not obvious but in afghanistan it's completely dry you can't get hold of any alcohol or drugs uh, you know obviously in the military um you can't do that anyway so i had no my previous mechanism would be to just drink through it or you know just distract myself through substance abuse or you know or other things that people do use to distract themselves with and um i couldn't do that in afghanistan so it was just i just had to I just kind of, it was just dark and I just dealt with it and I just focused on work. It's all I could do. It's, it's literally, I focused on work and I focused on going to the gym. Uh, and I think that saved me, you know, going to the gym, um, having time to myself to decompress, to take out my anger on machinery, you know, and weights. Um, I became obsessed with, you know, uh, managing my, my nutrition. You know, I was drinking you know five liters of water a day i mean afghanistan it's sort of 50 degrees in the shade anyway um and i just focused on relentlessly on becoming a, a physical machine um and that really helped actually because i could see some positive results that were coming from something that i was doing to myself it was good even though with the dark stuff and the, and the anxiety and the worry and, and the stress that was going on in my mind at least i had an element of control over my body so that yeah it was that was that was pretty bad um the nightmares really started happening after i left the family home and i moved into single uh, living accommodation still in the military at this point uh and then that's when the insomnia really kicked in and i was getting flashbacks uh every time i hear any kind of loud noise that's louder than normal i would start to flinch um, a particular incident in a particular incident in McDonald's. Um, someone dropped their tray of, of food, and you know what the trays like sound like when they drop plastic on the hard floor. And I literally dived on the floor and shouted, um, "You know, attack!" I thought we were, I thought we were under mortar fire, basically. So that was that was really traumatic, uh, reliving that kind of thing. Um, and then throughout this whole process i was i started to use alcohol to cope again um and 
I wasn't, it wasn't like drink, it wasn't like crazy levels, you know, drinking in the morning or anything like that. It was just drinking excessive stuff in the evening, really, more binge drinking, really. Um, and I was using that obviously as a self medication, a coping mechanism to, to, to escape from the, you know, the negative thoughts. Um, it didn't help, of course. And you just wake up with a hangover, and those thoughts are even more magnified. Um, but what happened was, um, I got, yeah, I left the family home in 2014 and then uh, decided to leave. This is, uh, decided to leave the Air Force before that, of course. And then luckily, I had uh, built up a good reputation in the aquarium industry where I could walk into a civilian job almost straight away. So I actually normally have to serve a minimum amount of time before you leave the military, but they, they gave me permission to leave sooner. Um, and I worked for a company down in London doing uh, doing some aquarium work, and that didn't that didn't work out very well. And my symptoms were getting much worse. I the the, the company weren't very supportive um, in terms of uh, I, um, my travelling because I lived quite far away from the company. And they, as long story short, it didn't work out. Um, I became really depressed now, and I'm, my drinking's increasing. Um, my risk taking is increasing. Um, and, and just the, uh, you know, the maladaptive behaviors were just getting worse. Um, and it got to the point where, um, my, my, my drinking was, was to the point where it was really stopping me from, from working, from earning money. I got myself in, into some financial, uh, complications. Uh, I mean, my, my mental health is deteriorating as the alcohol, uh, is increasing. And it's as you know, it's a vicious circle. And um, this this is two thousand and so this is now this is now consider considerable amount of time on from the original trauma from the original PTSD. It, it, there's lots of complex issues, obviously going from, from childhood, etc. But but the fact that I am living now through just the darkest time, you know, I I'm, I'm getting suicidal thoughts. Um, I'm drinking in the morning just a complete and utter disaster to live with and um well this is happening um it's all complex actually it's actually quite emotional kind of bringing it all back up but the uh, through through this whilst all this is happening my my dad who I have a very complex relationship with going back to childhood um he he gets cancer uh, stage four, he has three or four months to live. So this is all happening uh, around this, you know, all, all the symptoms of PTSD, my drinking, um, my erratic behavior, uh, my unpredictability, mood swings, insomnia, you name it. Uh, and but the, so the, I'm going through like the worst time. And, but the, the one thing that I was, I kept doing, even even when I was in my darkest place, I was still being involved with aquascaping, and I wasn't necessarily setting up the most beautiful aquariums, but I was still doing some content, and it was still keeping me, it's still giving me some purpose and, a, and an anchor point of of identity. This is who I am. I am an aquascaper, um, and and so I was throughout all of the darkness. I still had aquascaping. And then, and then something really interesting happened. So, I, I, I basically had an ultimatum 
Uh, I had these episodes of drinking, of binge drinking for a while, losing control, and then um, apologizing to, to everyone that I'd hurt, sort, sorting myself out, going completely teetotal, getting obsessed about running, nutrition, being super healthy, super high performing. And then something would happen and the cycle would start again. I would drink. And you must, you come across this before, I guess, with your clients. Absolutely. I just want to point out that this this is such a common trajectory and story. I can't tell you the number of times I've I've heard some version of this uh, of this story from my military clients. It's so so common. That's that's reassuring, actually. Um, so uh, aquascaping was kind of my savior, if you like, and uh, and it gave me a, an anchor point, like I said, to to to, to attach identity to, I guess, and I gradually. Uh, I, I, Emma gave me an ultimatum. I went through another one of these cycles of, of drinking. Emma said, "I can't, I can't live with you like this, George. You have to sort yourself out. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to have to throw you out. You're going to have to live with your mum or do do whatever." And I was like, "Okay, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to ring accounts. I'm going to ring a therapist right now." And um, I did, and uh, that that was that was a huge game changer. And I saw that. There, uh, uh, I was in therapy, quite intense therapy for the first sort of few months and it was really helpful um, and it really helped to identify some really serious chronic issues obviously from childhood etc that I wasn't actually aware of or it could just give me a language to describe how I was feeling and labelling things and uh, you know learning to let go of certain things and so the, so the therapy was a game changer, it helped with the drinking you know I'm not... I, 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 I still I do drink now, but it's completely in control. And um, it, but it is something I have to really manage. Uh, but she helped the therapist really helped with that and um, helped in part with the PTSD. But the PTSD didn't seem like the biggest problem at the time. It was more the the, the childhood trauma, I think, and the, this self destructive pattern of of drinking and you know and then high performance and then drinking and you know, it was just crazy but that was really helpful and then and then sort of throughout the same kind of time as this uh my brand was growing in terms of aquascaping i was working with more companies i became aware that youtube could be a really good career move as well uh, and really started to focus on that and then that's you know that's been a real real help although that does have its flip side which i'm sure we can cover in in, in more details uh during the podcast um and now, now where I am now, fast forward, it, it, it's a daily, it, it's it's daily work. I have to put the work in to coin the famous uh, book, um, you know. And sometimes I do better than days than others, and it, but it, it's it's something I have to I, I've learned to live with, you know the it, the. It, but it, it, I'm great. It, it, it's weird to say, and it makes me feel quite emotional. But in some respects, I'm really grateful for all of the stuff that I've gone through because it has. It's obviously enabled me to be who I am right now, and speaking to you about it, and hopefully helping other people um, deal with and manage their their mental health issues. But aquascaping, it, it's just been. Um, I wouldn't be here without aquascaping, simple as that, yeah. 
Yeah, well, George, I really want to uh, first thank you for your vulnerability and telling us about a deeply personal and and emotional and sounds like really, you know, obviously very tough time in your life. And I think for anyone listening who's out there struggling, uh, your story will be an inspiration for them and help them to marshal the courage maybe to take that first step. So I think in addition to maybe you know, laying it out, obviously, for the purpose of the podcast, I, I think it's really meaningful that you're putting it out there. And I think a lot of people will be touched and moved by it. It's actually really quite inspiring to hear you talk about it, to to be totally honest. Yeah, thank you. I just feel lucky that I, I, I found it, you know, and I had something. And I think and it doesn't have to be aquascaping, of course, but if, if as long as you, if there's anyone that's suffering out there, and I, I'm not here to give people advice or it's not, you know, it's not a self-help, you know, program, but if if you can just find something that you can do that you're that you feel you're good at that gives you positive feedback and you're giving something else positive positivity it doesn't matter how small it is um just start off you know i mean the smaller the better because you can start off really small and and get and get good results um it's it's a deep it's a deep topic obviously you know where we're going um and it's all about just just trying to live, you know, it's all about just trying to live the best life you can for yourself, but for other people around you. And um, how you decide to do that, that that's, where the, that's where the challenges are. Because you, your subconscious is telling you to do one thing, you know, avoid discomfort at all costs. Uh, for me, that was, you know, reach for the bottle, you know, but actually you have to go through the discomfort to learn to learn how to do it to learn how to get through the discomfort and then you're armed and you're trained to hopefully deal with the discomfort when it comes next time so you don't have to reach for the drink reach for the drug reach for the uh i don't know dodgy website you know whatever your you know poison of choice that you know just think you know you are a consequence of the choices you make right and it's easy to make sometimes it's easier to make the 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 choices that are worse off for you and even though logically you know that sometimes it's just compulsion to do it it's self-sabotage isn't it is that what they call it it's it's pretty complex right because a lot of our urges to engage in these uh behaviors are rewarded because they they work in the moment to alleviate distress yeah and you know, and if we can just somehow find a way, and I'll talk about this in one second, if we can find a way to defer that particular brand of reward for a more longer term reward, then we can make the change. I think it's worth pointing out that um, I just had Judd Brewer on the podcast and we talked about making the, exactly these kind of changes. And we know that willpower doesn't work. Neither does neither yeah. does substitution, right? Because it just plugs, you know, trading one addiction for another, quote unquote, when we're going to veer away from a problematic behavior, we have to find what he calls like a bigger, better offer. Right. And I think what I heard in what you said, George, was that, you know, you found your meaning and the bigger, better offer in aquascaping. It gave you, it transcended sort of the immediate escape that some of these other things may have offered to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a powerful way of looking at it, actually. It trying, yeah. Aquascaping, I think the thing with aquascaping for me is it's bigger than me and it's bigger than any, any one person. And um, I think that's really important to work, to have a goal that is bigger than you because you can never, you always feel like you can add, you always feel there's something else to learn for something else to add. And um, 
it's just rewarding to know that what you're no matter how what a small part is that you're doing is contributing to something of positivity to other people what you're pointing out is so reminiscent of a style of therapy that we call acceptance and commitment therapy, where the idea is you accept the experience of your discomfort, of the distress, of the intrusive thoughts, of the urges, the impulses, and you commit to valued actions that have meaning associated with them. And what I also heard in what you said was sort of maybe even in that sense of finding something bigger than yourself, maybe even having a sense of awe around it, right? I remember in one of your videos, you talked about walk, the moment that you walked into that room in Portugal, I believe, mm. with the, uh, yeah. with the, it was basically wall-to-wall -wall aquascaping, how it sort of, you were overcome with emotion because it was so much bigger than you in a sense, right? Like it was, I don't want to yeah. put words in your mouth, but it definitely yeah. sounded like you were filled with awe in that particular moment. Well, that was like, I guess without trying to sound too kind of uh, flippant, it's like, it was like the version of me meeting my creator in a way. Because the, the guy that created that, he, he's the guy that, the Takashi Amano is the guy that started my path on aquascaping, you know? So for me, like aquascaping is almost like, I guess like a rebirth in a way. Um, and, you know, Takashi Amano was like, you know, I don't want to sound too woo-woo, but he's like, you know, the godfather of aquascaping. This is his mecca. This is the last thing he ever created before he died. And it's like the biggest, most beautiful aquarium that anyone's ever seen. And you go in there and the sen just the sensory input, you know, it's like completely, there's no ambient light apart from the, the aquarium. The music that's playing in the background is comp composed bespoke for, for that exhibit. It's, uh, it's, uh, do you do liters or gallons? Canada's a weird mix of metric and imperial. So yes, gallons, but it should be liters. <laughs> 160,000 liters, 40,000 US gallons, give or take. And you're, you know, you're completely encapsulated by this, this beautiful work of art slash nature. And yeah, it just invokes so much powerful emotion. And it was overwhelmingly positive, but it, I just felt at home there. You know, I just felt this is the, this is, the beginning this is like what the coming yeah like you know meeting your creator i guess yeah george that's really powerful and, and i think finding meaning and a deep sense of meaning is such a critical part of working through trauma and if people can find meaning they they can pretty much endure just about anything yeah yeah i'd agree with that what's the difference between purpose and meaning is there a difference you know functionally to me i would regard them as being more or less uh you know, more or less the same construct. It's a big thing, isn't it? Find your purpose. And I, I feel really grateful to have found mine. I guess you feel grateful to have found yours, Pete, with psychiatry and, and what you do. Where, what, what's the next step? You know, like, okay, I've, I've, I don't want to realize a list of achievements because it sounds, you know, big-headed, but I've done quite a lot with, in, in a relatively short time with aquascaping. What's the next thing? And, and where do I... And now I, I'm kind of thinking what's best going to serve not just me but for aquascaping you know what how best can i get the message of aquascaping across to other people so an interesting story is that i used to call myself the aquascaper and actually thinking back it was really quite sounded quite egocentric you know i am the aquascaper you know it sounded quite um big-headed and um I changed, long story short, I changed my name, my brand name to George Farmer Studios. And it, I'm really pleased about that because actually 
when I think about the word, when I think about the aquascaper, it, it comes across as um, I'm, I'm bigger than aquascaping because I am the aquascaper. But aquascaping is bigger than me. And my, my, my purpose is to serve the message of aquascaping. You know, I'm not, I am not, I'm not the aquascaper. I'm just the messenger, you know, of okay. it. So that's, that's how I see it. Aquascaping will always be bigger than me. The, the aquascaping community will always be bigger than me. I, I'm just in a very fortunate position to have a voice and a platform where I can communicate, you know, this beautiful art uh, to, to a relatively large audience, you know, and that's, I guess that's where I found my, where I find my purpose in, in, in the message, getting that message across of, of aquascaping. Yeah, so George, I want to ask you a little bit around the dynamics of managing such a very public-facing and popular YouTube channel. I think when I checked the other day, you're over well over 32 million views, um, you know, which is very impressive, especially sort of in, in a niche area like aquascaping. You know, I'd like to know, like, how do you find the balance between meaning and and and, and connection, maybe to people who are watching the video, uh, versus the noise from online haters or even sort of your own ego, right? Like, you know, being driven to put out content that maybe is going to generate views and revenue, which is a real concern, mm. but maybe may, may not be quite as meaningful to you personally. So how do you, how are you knitting together sort of your internal experience of it versus managing the real world uh, realities of this? That's a really great question. I don't think anyone's put it so well before. Um, let, let's just start with the haters. That's an easy one. Um, it's not easy to deal with, but it's an easy one to answer. The great thing about the haters is that they're, they're a tiny minority, uh, thankfully. Um, we're probably looking at the last time I looked, um, just likes to dislikes ratio, it's 98% you know, in favour. Um, and then luckily, the 2% that hit the dislike, you're probably only getting 1% of those that are actually, you know, saying anything nasty and then probably one percent of those actually saying anything actually that i'd actually read and take to heart my my best method for dealing with the haters is 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 to actually just ignore them and just realize that most people people love your work and the bigger you get the more people that are going to see your work the more people that are going to hate it but the more people that are going to love it and the more people you're impacting in, in a positive way so that's quite a simple one to get your head around um I used to really find the haters and the criticism really, really uh, used to really take it to heart. And that comes from, uh, you know, having a super critical father, I guess, and just triggered me. But now I almost laugh it off and I'll, I'll just show a friend, I'll just screen grab it and I'll just show a friend and we'll just both laugh about it together. And I just find about laughing about things, that kind of physical uh, reaction to something, you know, when it, it just immediately neutralizes any negative kind of emotion. Do you know? Is there, there must be some science behind that. They, they say laughter is the best medicine, don't they? There's a technique that we use called diffusion, where let's say we have an anxious thought, like I'm a terrible person. We'll say it, in, you know, we'll get people to say it in a funny voice of some kind. Or, yeah, oh, I'm a terrible person. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? It's just, a, it's the, the idea is to diffuse yeah. the emotion from the thought. And you can see that a thought is just a thought or... One point I wanted to make real quick, George, is that, you know, we're, we're wired to be so allergic to rejection that even if we hate somebody a thousand percent, 
if we get rejected by them, it's still going to hurt. It's just sort of a, yeah. it's just sort of a weird, not a weird one. It's a byproduct of how we're wired up as human beings. So rejection is a killer, no matter who it's coming from. It, it's just, it's, I think it's important for anyone to realize when they do these kind of things that yeah. we are, we are wired to avoid rejection. So even the worst hater is still going to have an impact on some level, unfortunately. Yeah. That's a really good point. I guess it comes down to back, back to the kind of old, when we're tribal people and if you weren't accepted in your tribe you get thrown out and you die basically. exactly so come back back to that yeah okay interesting so there's actually a proper biological reaction going on there to criticism exactly and george what about the fame piece you know like so we, we've dealt with the haters mm. what about sort of managing the, the the public facing sort of you know let's say fame for lack of a better word that comes with being so prominent yeah, it's it's challenging. So it's a really good example. I've, I'm literally outside an aquarium store right now. Uh, I just did some filming in there, and literally two minutes before I joined the call, they they all came out and said, "Oh, can we get a photo with you?" You know, and I'm trying to like get ready for a a podcast in my car in private, and people are you know, and it is it's I pre I'm grateful for it because it's a symptom of you know I have this following and I have this opportunity to communicate you know my passion and I'm super grateful for that I, I just try to, I just it sounds really cheesy I just try to stay humble and always think of my place as a place of service rather than so I, I see myself in a leadership role but in a, in a service leadership so um I use I use my you know in air quotes fame and fortune or however you want to describe it in in the best way I can to serve the vestige of aquascaping the best I can. And I just try to, I choose, I choose the people I hang around with very carefully. Um, you know, I have a very, very small circle of, 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 of very close friends. I have a huge people, you know, a huge, you know, uh, acquaintances. Um, and that, and that's great. But, um, yeah, I just try to stay, stay authentic, stay humble and just always think about the mission. You know, the mission is, is to promote aquascaping and then a byproduct of that is to help people out with their life and just because i have a bigger following and i have more material blessings than maybe someone else that just gives me more options and a bigger platform to help spread that message message of positivity that's how i try to see it yeah and george when you're developing content you know the the, the mind loves to fall in love with its own creations do you have <laughs> You know, and especially the more success you get, you might be more apt to drink your own Kool-Aid. Do you have a set of trusted friends or people who you know are not going to try to get close to George Farmer or, you know, who, who are going to give it to you straight and be honest with you and say, you know, George, that probably wasn't your best effort or, yeah, that comes off a little bit the wrong way or, you know, whatever. Do, do you rely on that kind of feedback from trusted, uh, a trusted group of friends or collaborators? No, I don't need haters in my life, uh, Pete. They, they, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, anyone that gives me negative feedback, they just, yeah, they're, they're discarded. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm joking, of course. My wife is my best critic. She's the, my, my biggest supporter and my biggest critic as well when it comes to content. She'll, she'll say, oh, you, you could have said that a bit better. You, know, you could work on your voice here a bit more. Or maybe you should have, you know, broken that down so she's really good at giving practical good feedback and i've got work colleagues that will give me professional feedback from a technical perspective um that aren't afraid to give me feedback 
and then I have a couple of very very close friends that will give me feedback on a you know on a on a personal level if they feel like you know they're they're brutally honest with me which which I need as well so I mean I don't know where you're at Pete in your genre you mean you seem very successful and I don't know if you have a huge following or or anything like that so I don't but you seem you seem top of your game you know and it's it, sometimes it's a, it's not a place to be, isn't it? Because you, you I, I feel like I have a sense of like, uh, well, I want to look after my territory, right? And so sometimes I'll get um, smaller creators uh, asking for advice. You know, how do I grow my channel? Can you can you boost me here? Can you promote this? And, and the, the first thing I'll do is just is literally look, look at their you know look at their content. I'm not interested in their you know, their sub story or their background. Really, is their content going to be good, and is it going to tell the message that I want? You know, that I think is worthwhile telling. Uh, George, I want to ask you about the book real quick. I believe the book is called Aquascaping. Uh, funny enough, uh, the book itself is beautiful. It, it's really a piece of art, if you don't want me saying so. It's it's sort of the aquascaping equivalent of a book, if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, what was that process like for you? How long did it take? And again, on the podcast, we like you know we talk about mental health, but I'm also really interested in creativity and productivity and all that kind of stuff. So I'd, I'd love to hear about what it was like for you to put that book together. Ah. Uh. That's a really interesting story. So I had all of the best intentions to be hyper-focused, to like deep work, avoid all distraction. I could even considered like hiring a little cottage in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, and just like you see in the movies, you know, write this book in like a week. And um, <laughs> yeah, I was terrible, mate. Honestly, I procrastinated so much to even start the first, you know, I wrote, I wrote the basic, I got the deal off the, I got the contract off the publisher and then I, I wrote a basic uh, structure of how the chapters would be laid out. And then, and, and then it was like six months went on <laughs> and I'm not even like <laughs> put a pen, pen to paper or, you know, finger to the keyboard. And um, I started to get anxious and I was like, oh, they're asking for updates and I'm like, oh, I haven't done anything yet. And I'm starting to feel more. And then um, I just think, ah, oh, sod it. I just need to get this done. So Emma and and we, I live with two stepsons, Emma's sons. They basically left the house for a week, and um, and yeah, I just did loads of it uh, in one go. And um, I'm, I don't know, I don't know what kind of work are you. I'm a very much. I have to work. I work my best under pressure. So I I, I often leave things to the last minute, and then that's when I do my best work. So it was very much a case of that with a book. But then with, with the, when lockdown came along, so we, we, in the UK, we hit lockdown in early March last year. Um, and it was coming towards like, I had to hand the book in, you know. And, but I just used those, that lockdown because I couldn't travel and a big part of my business was traveling. Um, but I used that opportunity whilst I was on lockdown. Uh, every morning I was getting up at half four, five in the morning, you know, working like three hours deep work without any interruption from anyone. And I did that for sort of two, three months and I got the book finished. And um, it was great. I really, that was actually the, the first couple of months of lockdown is the most productive, most focused, most driven. Um, I, felt, I felt a sense of, I felt secure. I felt like I had, I was contributing some really good things. 
my day was structured. You know, I just felt, even though we're on lockdown and the world's in chaos, I my personal world was great. You know, I had structure in my day. I was contributing. You know, this big project that's bigger than myself. Um, I was taking. You know, I was, my my aquariums were looking great because I was spending more time maintaining them because I was at home more often. I was taking more photos of the aquariums because they're looking so great. Those photos were going in the book. And all of, the, all of these were like positive, reinforcing kind of uh, cycles, which, which are really good, actually. And um, I actually miss, I miss that early part of lockdown because now I'm really fed up with lockdown, <laughs> if I'm honest. Yeah, that would, that would make two of us for sure. Are there any aspects of the lockdown lessons that you plan on carrying forward as far as your routine goes or you know, maybe being mindful of how much you're committing to things so you can really go all in on the things you do have on the go. Like how, from a time management perspective, are, do you envision things changing or, or are you going to go back to uh, the old paradigm? Yeah, I've definitely learned a lot about myself and working patterns and everything in lockdown. You know, you're spending so much time in the same environment with the same people. Uh, it does crazy things to you. Um, but the uh, I think the main lessons are I need to focus a lot more on self-care. You know, I'm, I'm probably regarded as a workaholic. If I'm honest with myself, I'm probably using it as a distraction from all the stuff that's gone on in my past. You probably know more about that than me. Um, I guess I guess you get a lot of that with sort of high, in inverted commas, high achievers. Uh, a lot of them are dealing with, you know, unresolved issues, aren't they? Um, so lockdown has... Yeah, it taught me more self-care because because social media is a big part of my business and I'm at home so much. Social media is a, a bigger part of my work basket and I do social media for other brands. And I end up, I have to be really disciplined on how I use social media because I, I, I consume it as well as create on it. And, it, and it's really tricky to find that balance. And the stuff that you're consuming, I do question, you know, it's... Uh, if it's good for you or not, a lot of the time. Uh, that's another story. Um, so I just hyper-focused on um, ha- having having a very, very specific goal in a very specific time frame, and then being relentlessly focused on getting it done uh, and avoiding as much distraction as physically possible. So that's one thing I've learned, and I've got in the habit of doing that. Um, I've got in the, just like little micro habits, like as soon as I think of something, that needs to be done um, rather than just put in the back of my mind I just like write a little or take a little voice note on my phone or write it on a notepad um, and then that just frees up my brain to work on more important stuff rather than trying to constantly remember the, the stupid little things that normally wake me up at three in the morning um, so yeah just offloading as much stuff as I can um, being relentlessly focused on good nutrition uh, good exercise not overtraining. Uh, but doing enough to feel good about yourself, so and you know, and and not worry specifically about eating too much. If you want to have a you know cheeky glass of wine or a beer or a bit of cheese or you know, morning routines are really important to me. Um, I, I very very strict kind of routine in the mornings involving um, you know half a liter of water as soon as I wake up. Um, and my wife stays in bed. I go downstairs. And then I do, um, I, the first thing I do is give my dog a huge cuddle and I lift him up and we have a great time for 30 seconds saying hello to each other. That's really great. I really look forward to that. And then it's all chores, empty dishwasher, make coffee, do, 
I do exercises in the garden. I've tried to, have you heard of earthing? You know, connecting to the earth? Yeah, I have heard of that, yeah. And it's like, uh, apparently, like, has anti-inflammatory properties. Um, yeah, so I, I try to do some exercises in the garden in bare feet if I can, if the weather's okay. Uh, I do a lot of running. Running is like a meditation for me. I don't actively meditate as much as maybe I could do, uh, but I find running is a really good form of meditation for me. So I'll often either run with an audio book, a podcast, uh, or nothing. Um, I used to run some music, but now it's either nothing, just the nature. I'm very lucky to live in quite a rural area where there isn't much traffic noise, there isn't much light pollution, etc. Um, so I'm very lucky for that, and I just sometimes run and just let my thoughts just come and go and just enjoy the scenery, and, and that's one of my best kind of meditations. Yeah. What about you, Pete? What are you... You, you kind of work in, at university, though, so your day is quite – you're not working from home all the time, are you, or are you? Yeah, so um, I have a couple of uh, cross appointments in different universities here in town, but I'm essentially a psychologist in private practice. And in March of last year, we all – you know, when the quarantine hit we or the uh, stay-at-home order hit, we all migrated to working from home. So I've been – you know, speaking to you from what was formerly sort of my studio music room, it's now become sort of my my office. And uh, yeah, so I've been working from home ever since. And uh, yeah, like yourself, I think really thriving off of routine. And, you know, what I've learned from working with clients is that there's a lot of like you want to automate as much of your life as possible from a routine perspective, because if you wake up every day and it's a blank slate, it's just too much energy to try and put the day together. And before you know it, it's noon, you look up, it's nothing happening. I, Way back when I used to not work Fridays and uh, those are my worst days in a sense because I wouldn't eat breakfast. I'd, you know, mess around on the internet. I'd end up having a bowl of honeycombs at lunchtime and then I'd, you know, take a nap in the <laughs> afternoon, like just a total gong show of lack of productivity. Uh, so so I think routine yeah. and schedule keep us healthy. And I do a lot of the same things that you do, like running for me and, and powerlifting and things like that. Those are, that's kind of my therapy. Mm -hmm. I was, although I do therapy in addition to that anyway, but on a day-to-day -day basis, those, that physical output I find to be critical to keeping sort of in, uh, in good stead with myself. Do you meditate? You know, I, uh, I've had a lot of trouble establishing the habit, but I've, I've played around with it quite a bit. Uh, I, I use a uh, headspace, not a sponsor of the podcast, but, or not as no sponsors of the podcast, in fact, but we're gonna try. We're gonna try. Muse is better than Headspace. Oh, is that right, Ed? Have you tried? Have you seen the headbands things you can get? Some monitor your sleep. I have. I've heard. I've heard about it, and I've recommended it to a couple of clients based on things that I've read. It looks. It looks fascinating. Like gives you. It's sort of like mindfulness on steroids, right? Because it gives you that feedback in real time with respect yeah. to you know what your brain's up to, right? Gamifies your sleep. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, that's that's very cool. George, you know, in prep for this conversation, we, we've also talked a little bit about sort of, uh, you know, self-development and cu cultivating a growth mindset. How do you, you know, you've touched on this a little bit already, but from a, you know, from a psychological perspective, what are some of the coping strategies that you've found effective to, you know, to navigate the work, you know, that goes into being a human being every day? I think the, one of the biggest, it's really simple. One of the biggest things I've learned is to exercise gratitude relentlessly. And even in the worst, even when you think something is like the worst thing that could be possibly happening in that moment, um, just just try to reframe how you're thinking about it. So rather than being coming from a place of victimhood, like why is this happening to me? Think of it as this is happening to me. How can I use this as an opportunity? 
you know, to grow or to do whatever, but try to flip it and becoming uh, a positive. Have you read James Clear, Atomic Habits? No, I haven't. I've, I've certainly heard of the book. What's your, uh, have you read it? Yeah, it's really good. One of the best things that I learned from it, and I tell everyone that, that listens to me, is that if you want to become a runner, leave your trainers at the bottom of your bed in, at night. That, that's it. That's basically Atomic Habits. So it's basically setting yourself up to succeed. So you get up in the morning and you see the trainers and you're like, oh, I've got to go for a run now. So it's so just about those setting up those triggers. So that's what I do whenever, you know, whenever I've got something important to do, set myself a little reminder or just if, if I'm doing a So a really good example is sometimes I'll have to run out of the house to do, a, you know, do an errand. But I know I've got something really important to do when I get as soon as I get back. But it's something really important to do that I probably want to put off or procrastinate on because it's not a very glorious task. So what I'll do, I'll deliberately set the task up the first step of that task so when i get back i know i have to do it and, and it, because you've already done that first step it's much more easier to carry on and finish the whole task no problem but it's so hard just to take that first step isn't it it really is and i think the advice to clients typically is you you keep if you can't do the first step you keep you know migrating that first step back thin slicing it back yeah. to the smallest thing that you can do right it's like can you sit down in front of the computer okay i can manage that can you open the word document yeah okay i can do that so cuz as opposed to like write the essay it's too overwhelming right there's like yeah. 15 steps in there so it's getting it back down to that smallest con- constituent step that you can sort of action and i think one thing i want to pick up real quick that you said was the idea of cues right there's this one clinical case where um, this individual had lost sort of the memory part of their brain, but as long as they were in their home and had sort of the wallpaper and the light fixtures and the flooring, they could navigate their home completely on cues out of habit as opposed to memory. They couldn't they couldn't tell you where the bathroom was, but they knew how to get there just exclusively using cues, which is, again, that spe- our brain is lazy, right? So it wants to automate as much of our life as possible. It's like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where um, when we're at the cottage and the power goes out, we can't flush the toilet because otherwise we lose the water when you can't, you can't get it back. Trying not to flush the toilet is almost impossible because it is so automated. Yeah, uh, it's it, like an instinct, isn't it? An it's like an that. instinct. Yeah. That's right. So, so the unconscious mind is... A learned behavior. And yeah, you're right. Your unconscious mind is just like, yeah, just do it. Yeah. We're kind of like schnauzers at the end of the day, right? Like we're pretty easy to train <laughs> in, in some ways. Uh, you know, it's just taking the time to deconstruct what's going on and, and then build up those contingencies so that we can get the the cues going in the right direction, mm. I guess. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, habit habit forming, creating positive habits is yeah, absolutely been one of the big big things for me. And and you can apply that to you know all anything in life can't you a good habit of eating good habit of drinking more water exercise mental you know wellness listen to thoughts on record podcasts it sounds george like you've made gratitude a habit as well yeah gratitude is uh it's actually become a habit now to express at least three three things i'm grateful for in the morning so when um one of the things i do in my morning routine is actually uh, i make myself a bulletproof coffee and I make Emma a cup of tea, Earl Grey, of course, being English. And um, yeah, we sit in bed and we say three things we're grateful for. And it could be as simple as I'm grateful for the sunshine, you know. I'm great, and it could be really deep, you know. I'm grateful that we 
you know, uh, had a good conversation last night about the political system in the United States. Not. <laughs> <laughs> George, I want to ask you a very specific sort of aquascaping question that really ties into what we're talking about. Uh, as the previous owner of many failed aquariums, I, I, th- I think where <laughs> I think where things have fallen apart is in the maintenance, right? And so, yeah. what lessons have you learned about uh, establishing a sustainable habit from your work in aquascaping? In terms of like, I'm, I'm sure there's times where you set up beautiful aquariums for your clients, mm. and you walk away, and it's kind of like, Ugh, what's this thing going to look like in six months, right? So, how do you help <laughs> people to establish the habit of of taking care of something? Now, of course, we're using aquascaping in this particular example, but it could be anything. What What have you learned yeah. about maintenance in in terms of establishing sort of routines and schedules? That's a, that's a really good one. I think the, the overarching theme is preventative maintenance is better than corrective. So it's always better to to manage and prevent any issues from occurring before they you know they get out of hand. And obviously you can apply that to mental health or aquascaping or anything in between. Um, with regards to clients that I like that, that they're you know they might be brand new to aquascaping and they've got this fancy high and you know high tech aquascape that requires a lot of maintenance and it's quite daunting for them so so yeah i I give i give the clients a daily care guide what to do every day every week every month and if they follow that to the letter there is almost zero chance of them failing because it's these these are guides these are steps that have been established on hundreds if not thousands of aquascape success um, so it's a proven kind of method and it isn't, it isn't the only method that works. That's the great thing about aquascaping. There's so many different paths to success. This is just the path that I've kind of learned myself, uh, you know, through carrying out, you know, literally tens of thousands of hours of aquascaping. Um, and yeah, I just present the client with this thing, you know, this care guide, it's, it's a well-documented thing. It's in my book, you know, what, what to do every day, every week, every, every month. But the, I think the, the biggest principle that, that maybe listeners can take home um, is is prevent, prevention is better than cure. You know, it's, it's, it's better to prevent and maintain whatever you're working on, your cell sort of project, your aquarium, you know, whatever. Better, better to take little actionable positive steps than just kind of burying your head in the sand and waiting for a problem to occur, by which point it, it's going to be a lot harder to deal with and manage. Yeah, I love it. And I think that's exactly how life works. I also love what you had said in the book, I believe, where, you know, say the uh, the drudgery of perhaps doing a water change, you know, if you can get a podcast going, get some music going, you know, sort of pair that with something a little bit pleasurable or a learning opportunity that, that can help kind of grease the wheels a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, really try to fall in, uh, it sounds really cliche, but try to fall in love with the process. I mean, maintenance is just part of the aquascaping process so it seems a bit unfair to only kind of love the you know the i don't know the uh the the joyful side of taking a pretty photo at the end you know that that's really that's great but actually try to enjoy yeah i mean maintenance is most people would find maintenance boring right get a toothbrush in the tank or trimming plants but yeah, if you have a podcast on in the background, you know, get, if you've got some AirPods or headphones, or you just got, you know, you speak your smart speaker, you know, just put something on that you enjoy that you that you can just have on in the background, and then just just be really mindful of what you're doing. So if you're trimming a plant, 
don't don't just sort of mind wander and think about what you're having for tea or you know just actually really look at what you're doing look at those blades coming together as they as they as they cut that plant tissue really look at that plant tissue as it's kind of being cut you'll probably notice some tiny oxygen bubbles release as that plant tissue is kind of opening up to the water you know and just these are beautiful natural processes that are happening right in front of your eyes and you're probably thinking about what you're having for tea so just be you know just be really mindful of that beautiful thing that you're you're dealing with right there and then you know you you you're in kind of control you're not really in control you're helping to evolve this beautiful living thing you know you're looking after potentially fish shrimp snails these are living entities that are in your care you know and you have a responsibility to look after them and therefore by default you have a responsibility to look after yourself because if you don't look after yourself then you can't look after them either so that's something else to think about you have a responsibility to care for any living thing that, that's in your care so yeah you have a responsibility to care for yourself as well well i love that george that's a that's a great take uh, I think I'm going to be stealing this from Mark Manson, uh, the idea of process and outcome being the same thing, right? So how many people want to be a rock star? You know, like a lot. How many people want to spend three, year in a van, three years in a van driving around making no money? Not very many, right? So you, if you want the outcome, you also have to want the process. And that's where I think, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of things fall apart because people just want the shiny outcome without putting in the hard labor to get, you know, that goes along with the process. And if you don't like the process, kind of what's the point? Exactly. Exactly. Because if you're not, if you're not enjoying the process, you're actually not going to enjoy the end result because you're only attaching happiness and positivity to the end result because you've more than likely been conditioned to think that end result is great. And that's, I'm going to go off, I'll probably on my soapbox. But that is a large result of, you know, the instant gratification society that social media is generating. Um, and, and the truth is, a lot of these so-called, you know, take it till you make it, entre- you know, millionaire entrepreneurs, a lot of it is actually complete BS. And they're hiring out, you know, hiring Lamborghinis and they're hiring fancy apartments to create this image that they've got, you know, their millions of pounds in a couple of weeks of trading. Um, but it's not, it, 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 you, you can't do it, you know, unless you're a really lucky kind of cryptocurrency and you landed at the right place at the right time, you're not going to get rich and famous instantly, uh, unless you put the work in, unless you're in a super specialist niche that's just, you know, going crazy right now. But you do, yeah, going back to your original point, you just have if you want to be really, really good at something and, and successful, however you want to measure success, you have to put the work in, simply. Yeah. And you have to enjoy the work. Yeah, ideally. Absolutely. All right, George, just before I let you go, you've been so generous with your time today. And, and again, uh, I can't say how much I appreciate the vulnerability in sharing your personal story. Uh, I think it's really going to help a lot of folks listening. Uh, if people want to learn more, if they want to find you on the web, where can they go? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for interviewing me. It's been a, a great opportunity to talk about aquascaping in a in a in a kind of different different way, which has been fascinating. So, thank you, Pete. Um, if people want to find me, um, just type in George Farmer on YouTube. You'll find me there. GeorgeFarmerStudios.com is my website where you can see all my latest Instagram 
uh, podcast, uh, YouTube, and uh, no, Facebook's not on there anymore. Yeah, content. So just georgefarmerstudios.com is probably the best place to find me. And, and again, for the folks listening, even if you have no intention of ever setting up an Aquascape, throw on one of George's videos and just chill out for a few minutes. And you, you have, <laughs> he has, he has a lot, George, you have a lot of these really nice, I guess, like cinematic videos, right? Where it's just really nice background music and uh, just these really nice visual treatments of the uh, different aquascapes. I find it to be like a meditation watching them. It is. It's, it's just a really nice combination of color, movement, sound. Yeah, what's not to love. exactly well again george thank you so much for your time today i know you're a very busy guy and you're squeezing me in uh, in between uh, commitments in your card no less (laughs) so thank you very much for that and and again the the vulnerability i think is really to be admired and uh you know again it's always really inspiring when a guest comes on and kind of puts it all out there i i find that to be uh you know so meaningful and i really really appreciate it Uh, and i appreciate the opportunity thanks no problem take good care george i hope we get to talk soon Yeah, absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.